0: When I was a young guy, I was preparing for ministry, and uh, I'll never forget going to a church where a pastor was going to be helping me uh, evaluate whether or not I should be a pastor. And they had a meeting beforehand. They were going to take us into membership as part of the training program, and I was going to have to share my testimony And I got really nervous as it came time to share my testimony, and I I began just to think over my mind about my my life as I became a Christian and uh, how my life looked after that, up to that point when I was entering into this pastoral internship. And as I I replayed it in my mind, I I remembered my my testimony, and, and the fear that I had was that I had been baptized when I was 10 years old. And as I thought about my life, I realized that I didn't really have a ton of what I could perceive as spiritual growth until I was about 15. And uh, it was when I was 15 that I, I began to be exposed to the opportunity of sin. And uh, I really went through a few months where I was trying to evaluate, do I want to follow Jesus and, and live for Him? Or do I want to live for sin? I really need to make a choice. It's kind of one or the other. And uh, in that season, over months, I uh, kind of sat by the, the fire of sin and just sort of warmed myself, didn't really jump in like I could have. But but I was there, and I was thinking about it, and I was processing, like, which way do I want to live? And uh, along the way, I know that uh, up to that point in the internship, I had some decisions that I would made that were sinful ways that I would lived at times. Uh, and even more than that, what really disturbed me was, I knew that even though I had kind of a reputation as a good kid, in my heart there was always this thought that— I, I kind of am attracted to sin, and, and I want it, and I almost feel like the only reason that I haven't sinned as much as I would if I could is that God and His grace has just not put it out there for me to actually be able to take hold of. And so my heart was the thing that really worried me, and uh, I noticed that, that in that moment, as it came time to share my testimony, I really was kind of sitting at the foot of this pastor and saying, look, I was baptized when I was 10, my sanctification, my uh, process of becoming more like Christ has been super clunky. And so I'm here today, if you think I need to get baptized like, as a, a true believer uh, because it didn't really work the first time, like, I'm, I'm open to that. And uh, he said, well, brother, uh, do you trust Christ today for your salvation? Yes. Do you believe that you believe Jesus whenever you're baptized? I said, yes. He said, we're just going to go with that. And I remember that was such an encouragement to me, but it was in that moment as I was processing through these things over those days that I realized that, that I, I had not really been taught about what's normal for the Christian life, what it looks like to become a Christian and to grow in holiness. Uh, I thought maybe I was supposed to sort of come locked and loaded with perfection uh, when I put my faith in Christ, and that just wasn't the case. And, and as I looked at the clunkiness, I thought maybe it just didn't take. Well, this morning we're gonna be looking at the book of Second Peter in verses 8 to 11, where Peter speaks of how a changed life can bring assurance of salvation. Uh, there is a real sense in which our life says something about whether or not we've been saved. And so we want to think carefully about this. And Peter has really been helping us think about this in the past few weeks as we've been thinking about our Remember This True Knowledge series Uh, This section of the letter that we're in, you'll remember that it began in verse 3. And just to catch you up to speed, this letter is by the Apostle Paul. I think he likely writes it to that same audience that he wrote 1 Peter 2. Those churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, a mostly Gentile group of Roman Christians. And it seems that uh, what Peter is telling us in this letter in verse 114 is that his death is drawing near. He's anticipating dying to go be with the Lord. And as he does that, he is writing this letter to stir up this generation of Christians and generations to come by way of reminder what it looks like to have true knowledge of Jesus, what it looks like to truly be a believer. And as he does this, he is concerned about what he perceives as false teachers who have come and will come who were teaching at least a couple of things. One is that, that Jesus isn't coming back. I mean, uh, Jesus said he was coming back. He hasn't come back yet, so maybe he's just not coming back. And second, therefore, it doesn't matter how we live. We can live it up in this world, in this life. We can, in some way, be united to Christ and spiritual, but not have a life that has been changed or transformed by the presence of Jesus Christ. And he launches this letter, Peter does, in verses 3 to 11, and he is moving from an encouragement. You'll remember in verses 3 to 4 that the the morally excellent Christ has called us to Himself, that by faith we've been united to Him in such a way that we are part of the new creation. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And then He transitions in verse 5 to to 7, and He says, And therefore, we need to make every effort, right, to to be holy as Jesus is holy, to reflect his virtues, the virtues that he mentions in verses 5 to 7. But this morning, what we're going to find is, is that he shows us this. This is our big idea. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. He says, progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification brings assurance of salvation and glorification, And I hope to see these things in the text as we unfold it over this sermon. But before we do, let's begin by just asking for God's help. Let's pray and then we'll begin. Father, this morning as we come before you, Father, we confess that we are sinners who have been saved by grace. There are some here who have not known the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet this morning we pray that they would come to know the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. But Father, for all of us, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would open our minds to behold Christ. And what it is that you have called us to, about the life that you have prepared for us. Lord, you have given us a present and a future. And we pray, God, that you would help us to see that and delight in it and long for more of it. It's in your name we do pray. Amen. Well, notice first that knowing Jesus means he progressively sanctifies us. Knowing Jesus, it means that he progressively sanctifies us. Now, you'll, you'll notice that he begins for if these qualities, and he's still speaking of these things, these qualities. He'll speak of those in verse 8, 9, and then 10 to 11. And he's talking about these. And he's pointing back up to those virtues that he listed in verses 5 to 7. That they, they began with faith, and they, they moved up towards love, which was the culmination and climax of faith. But here Peter says in verse 8 this, he says, for if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think the, the force of this voice, the, the force of this verse is that these virtues must A, exist in the life of these Christians, and B, they must increase. Now, this idea, it really carries... This thought of a kind of progressive growth over time, more and more, through a process of, of sanctification, uh, whereby you are from one degree of glory to the next, being transformed in the image of Jesus Christ. Well, this here, what we find is is a picture of what we would call progressive sanctification. Now, Herman Bavink is writing in his Reformed Dogmatics, and he says this: He says sanctification is continued throughout the whole life. It is a process, it happens throughout the whole life by the renewing activity of the Holy Spirit in us, gradually making the righteousness of Christ our personal, ethical possession. In other words, as as Christ is at work in us, as the Holy Spirit is at work in us, we are becoming more and more a people who are beholding and, and, and displaying this moral excellence of Christ. See, Peter here envisions that those united by faith to the morally excellent Christ, will display progressively more and more an ever-growing growth in their life of virtue. They will progressively be sanctified. Now, I don't think Peter's here inviting Christians to create some kind of grid with an Excel sheet and graphs. I know some of y'all are like, man, I love to like, we could get some data on this and we could show you like, here's how you're growing and like, here's the trajectory. And I don't think that's what he's saying. Now, I think what he's saying more is in the sense that, are these qualities ever present in your life? Are you abounding in these things? Is there growth and maturity in Christ? As Puritan Thomas Watson said, true grace is progressive of a spreading and growing nature. And a good Christian is like a crocodile. He is never done growing. I'll probably quote that a number of times because I love crocodiles. And apparently, they are always in the process of growing, just like good Christians. Now, Peter says, for these qualities are yours and increasing. And he goes on to say, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you you don't want to be ineffective. You you don't want to be unfruitful. Those are bad things. And so, this faithfulness, it's going to keep and protect, it seems to be saying here in this text, from uh, becoming ineffective and unfruitful. You'll remember this word for ineffective is used elsewhere in the Bible. It's kind of a unique word, but one of the three places that it's used comes in Matthew 20, verse 3 and verse 6, and it's describing idle workers who are wasting their day in the marketplace instead of working in Matthew 20, verse 3 and verse 6. It's the same word that's used of James in James 2:26, where he says, faith without words is dead or ineffective it's idle. Now, a defective here, or idle, it, it speaks of the nature of what you would expect of something that's dead, doesn't it? It doesn't move. You're kind of kicking it, and nothing's happening. It's like, you all right? No response. But not only is it not moving when you nudge it, you, you'll notice also that it is not Fruitful. See, similarly, you don't want to be unfruitful. Fruitful is a word that speaks to uh, what a Christian ought to be. It's a common metaphor that's used for ethical qualities or good works. Uh, this reads kind of funny in the English, though. As you read it, it says uh, that you, you don't want to be uh, either, uh, either unfruitful or ineffective, which you're thinking like, okay, that's what I don't want to be, but why doesn't he tell me what I want to be? Richard Bauckham explains it this way. He says, this is a, a litote, which is a kind of figure of speech that is affirming an idea by denying its opposite. So what he's saying is, by saying that you don't want to be ineffective and unfruitful, Peter's really saying you want to be active and fruitful. Now, coming close. I think there's a, a dangerous way that we could take this. In fact, when we're talking about sanctification, I mean, you could fall off on one side or the other really quickly and and fall into some dangerous theology. But imagine just for a second, as you're thinking about this picture, you you don't want to be unfruitful. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, I, I need fruit then, because he told me I need fruit. And it reminds me of kind of like an illustration that I've heard before. But just imagine that I invite you over to my yard, and I say, hey, I've got this tree in the back, and I want to show it to you. It's never produced fruit, but I'm about to make it fruitful. So here we go. I've got a bucket of apples, and I've got a staple gun. And we're going to go, and we're going to start stapling this fruit to the tree so that we have a fruitful tree, right? So I didn't have knowledge of Jesus. Here's a little bit of knowledge of Jesus. Click, like there's one. And then, oh, it says that I'm also supposed to hear love by brothers in Christ. Man, that's hard. There are a lot of brothers out there that are not easy to love. So I'm going to get the low-hanging fruit, like this brother right here, just like me. We both like golf. We'll hang out. Boom. I love my brother. Going to staple it. Look at this. I look like a fruitful tree. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I don't think that here we find Peter kind of encouraging us to just manufacture fruit in and of ourselves in ways that is really easy for normal humanity. Now, the reason that that tree in my backyard didn't produce fruit is that it has some kind of problem with the root, there's a root issue. If it has a good root, it's healthy, then it's gonna produce fruit itself. You don't have to staple fruit to a living, healthy tree, you have to staple fruit to a dead tree. And so here, what he's saying is that, that our lives, if they are idle, they look dead, if they are unfruitful, it it might say something more about the nature of the tree itself. I think sometimes we slip into thinking that Jesus grows the tree of our justification and then we are the ones who staple the fruit on it for sanctification. Now catch this, It, it takes effort, and as we'll see, diligence, but it is still rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. It is him who has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And while sanctification requires great-fueled effort and sweat, fruitfulness comes from knowing Jesus too. Uh, This is what Jesus himself said. You remember in John 15 where he speaks of himself as the vine and us as the branches. He says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is the one that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't bear fruit. And I think that's what Peter means here in verse 8. Did you know that he highlights it? He says that what keeps you from being ineffective and unfruitful is a reality that happens in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He he highlights this. Now, I, I don't think he's just saying with respect to some kind of objective knowledge about Jesus. I think this word or this phrase is a phrase that he is using to speak of a relational knowledge of Jesus Christ, that if we have truly been saved and united to him by faith, we will be fruitful, we will be effective for the kingdom more and more so, not because of us, but because his divine power is at work within us. See, Peter says progressive sanctification, growth and fruitfulness is rooted not just in knowing about Jesus but in knowing the altogether glorious, morally excellent Jesus Christ, who has given every Christian all things for life and godliness. Good works do not earn justification with God. Good works do not merit forgiveness. But God sanctifies those whom he has called to himself. See, those who know Jesus will look more and more like Jesus until they see him face to face, and they shall then become fully like him. As one pastor wrote, for the knowledge of Christ is an efficacious thing and a living root which brings forth fruit. Now this is not the way that everybody interprets the Bible. I think it's the clear way that Peter speaks, that Paul and others speak. But there are some that are teaching uh, what is called a free grace theology out there that says that it is possible for you to be justified made right with God, and yet at the same time, it have no impact on your moral life and the decisions that you make in the way that you live. They even call it free grace theology, and I love grace, and grace is free, but free grace theology is not the theology of the Bible. The Bible says that if you have met Jesus, the person of Christ, not just talking about teachings about Christ, but the teacher, Jesus Christ, if you have heard his voice and met him, it will change you. It might be a clunky ride, (laughs) but you will be changed. It's the beauty of what Peter is saying here. If you're justified, you will be sanctified. You will look more and more like Jesus. Also, you'll notice that faith is the beginning of a new way of life. It's not merely fire insurance, according to Peter. You see that salvation is not, let's get baptized so that I'm ready for Jesus to return on the last day. Salvation is also a new relationship that shapes every day. Every day until the last day and forevermore. But notice here in verse 9, he says, second, no progressive sanctification means no Jesus. Just to clarify. Now Peter is, I think, threading a needle here. Kind of reminds me of what Paul does in Romans. You'll remember that Romans, uh, Paul is for the first five chapters just pointing to the reality of justification by faith alone. And he's just hammering it, and then he all of a sudden stops in Romans 6, and he says, okay, let me explain what I'm not saying. Some of you might be at this point thinking about justification by faith alone, and you might be thinking to yourself, well, man, shall we sin all the more that grace may abound? I mean, if we are justified and we're innocent, even though we're guilty, like we've been given the guilt, the, the innocence of Christ, then, then maybe that means that we just, like, doesn't matter how we live. And what is Paul's response to that? I love the KJV, God forbid. Or the ESV, by no means. By no means. In fact, Paul goes on to say, we are those who have died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? Do you see it? If we really have been justified, how can we continue to go back to our sins, not realizing what it is that God has done in us? And here in 2 Peter 1.9, Peter is speaking of a kind of person who may or may not have misunderstood Paul. That that could be what it is. Somebody's been reading Paul, misunderstood him. We find later that Peter says, yeah, Paul's kind of hard to understand. But he says here that this person he's speaking about is saying that we should sin all the more that grace may abound. And this is really just a teaser for what he will say of this person later in chapter two. Peter will then like hone in on this person. But here, Peter says this to this person, this kind of person, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, Peter still got in view those eight virtues— and he says that possessing these qualities in some measure and growing is basic to Christianity, right? Like if you have a car, you need a steering wheel. This is just basic to what it is. Spiritual life and vitality is so basic to Christianity that to lack all of them in some measure means that you don't truly know Jesus relationally. That's what Peter's saying. See, Peter uses an intriguing metaphor in this text. In fact, your English Bible likely flips it. The English says a person lacking these virtues is so nearsighted he is blind. And that makes sense. I mean, you would progress, right, from from being nearsighted to blind as your, your sight is going out. And so a lot of scholars flip that around to make it make more sense. But the Greek actually says he's so blind he's nearsighted. There's a lot of debate as to why this happened and why... Uh, why they wrote this in Greek. One scholar takes these words together to say that this is a guy who's just being willfully blind. I I wonder, though, if there might be some reference to the gospel of Mark. You'll remember that Peter, we think, uh, Mark was written based on the sermons of Peter that he heard from Peter. And in Mark 8, Mark 8 is a pivotal chapter in the gospel of Mark. And it's there that we find that as he's moving to the climax in the center point of the story of Mark, he arrives at this story about Jesus giving sight to a blind man. And when he gives sight to him, it doesn't come all at once like a lot of the miracles. Here, there's like a two-stage, a double-step giving of sight. You'll remember in 824, Jesus, after he spits on the blind man's eyes, which must have been interesting to see that, right? Spit on your eyes and then rubs it in it says in mark 8:24 that the blind man responds i see people but they look like trees and they're walking now the next text it doesn't say in mark 8 that he's nearsighted but that sounds like nearsightedness to me and so jesus does it again and mark says at this point he opened his eyes his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly Now, some may take this to mean that we need a second spiritual experience to move from blindness to nearsightedness to sight. But but I think that misunderstands the significance of Mark 8 in Mark's gospel, because immediately after this, Jesus, he heals the blind man, and then Peter makes the good confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's after that, if you scale down to Mark 8.34, that you'll notice that for the first time in the Gospel of Mark, the word cross is used. It's the first time he speaks of the cross. See, Jesus' point in Mark is that the disciples not only needed Jesus to come for them to know the Father, they needed Jesus to die for their sins on the cross so that they might, have, they might receive spiritual sight. Now, might this potentially impact Peter's point, where he's looking at some false teachers and prophets who are blind guides, claiming that you don't need to live a virtuous life. Does it matter how you live? That the cross doesn't have to affect your life? See, Peter says a person like that has forgotten the gospel. They've lost sight of the meaning of the cross. They've, They've lost sight of the reality that they were cleansed of former sins, Now, it also could be that this nearsightedness speaks to the way that we, by nature, live apart from being alive in Christ. The Bible constantly says that we are nearsighted in our lives. We are living for the things that are right before us, the things that make us feel good in the moment. We lose sight of the the more eternal things, like the eternal kingdom of God that he speaks of in chapter 11. But what's fascinating here is I, I believe that he's pointing to a particular event in verse 9 that they have forgotten connected to the power of the cross. I think he's speaking of their baptism. Now Tom Schreiner, my old professor, I think he gets it right when he writes this. The cleansing from past sins refers to baptism, where the baptismal waters symbolize the washing away of sins, and hence the forgiveness of sins. Now, we've already seen in 1 Peter that Peter so connected baptismal waters to salvation that he could speak of the baptism which saves you. Now, he he was not a baptismal regenerationist, right? That means he, he did not have a theology that said, oh, the waters are mystical, and they actually are necessary to transform you. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that. There's some Church of Christ that teach that. But what he understood was that the baptism experience whereby someone is coming and being baptized as a public demonstration that there is a hidden reality that has taken place, that you have been united by faith to Christ, such that you are a new creation. It is an outward display of that inward reality. And he's saying, that is so basic to Christianity. It's such a natural thing. I can't imagine a Christian who hasn't been baptized. Christians are baptized believers. He doesn't understand the waters to cleanse you themselves. But he, like Paul, understands the waters of baptism to be that outward display of that inward reality that we have been united by faith to Jesus, who died on a cross and was buried. He was raised to life in the resurrection such that we have died with Christ and and been raised to newness of spiritual life so that we are no longer blind. See, if we are really understanding this text, I believe that what it's saying is is that Christians are not blind, they are cross-eyed. We literally are looking at the cross and seeing all of life through the lens of the gospel. Sin makes us judicially guilty. It makes us ceremonially filthy. If you think about it, the Bible speaks of, of sin's results in your life and my life in two ways. It makes us guilty and filthy, and you've probably felt both. Have you ever like, done something you weren't supposed to? Kids, you know what I'm talking about. And you all of a sudden uh, felt as though, like, man, I'm going to get caught. I know I shouldn't have done that. And maybe you've committed a sin and you've also felt unclean, dirty, like you almost need to take a shower. Like, I I just feel unclean before God and others. Well, these are actually realities that are tied to the nature of Jesus. Jesus justifies the guilty, but he also cleanses them. In fact, in the Old Testament, when people wanted to come before God, they would often need to go through cleansing or washing rituals. Uh, Those rituals were often because they had in some ways been involved with death or sickness or blood or something of this fallen world. See, cleansing in the Old Testament was associated with those things, and you needed to cleanse yourself of those to come in the presence of God. Baptism There's a lot going on with your baptism and what it means theologically, but it declares that sin that had left a crimson stain on you, Jesus washed it white as snow. Jesus buried us and cleanses us at the cross, but he raises us to new life and a new way of life when we were raised up in the baptism. So Peter here is connecting baptism with salvation that an unbaptized Christian would not have made sense to him. So here he's saying that if you are not growing in sanctification or these virtues, then you better check whether or not you understood what your baptism meant. Do you see that? Like, man, do you remember at your baptism that like you were cleansed and raised to a newness of life? If if you've not been changed morally, then maybe you weren't truly cleansed as your baptism confessed. Now again, I I need to thread a needle here. I know I'm gonna get some emails about this. Baptism by faith is an important act of following Jesus. It, it's important. Uh, I'm not saying that it's not possible for somebody to be a Christian who has not been baptized. Like, that, you know, that, that is not what I'm saying at all. But our church believes that the New Testament teaches that if you believe Jesus, baptism should be a first priority. Uh, Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, speaks to the authority, says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, Matthew 28. And he says, now, therefore, I want you disciples to go and make more disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Why do you think that he said, I want you to baptize, and then said, I want you to observe, when observing would include baptism? Right? Isn't that something that Jesus commanded them? It's because baptism was the first step of obedience. It's what it looked like to follow Jesus, to enter into, becoming part of the people of God. Baptism is important. Jesus says so. I wonder if sometimes we're so careful about talking about the importance of baptism and making sure people know that we're not saying that, like, we're legalist and if you're not baptized, you can't be saved, and that kind of thing, that we take it less seriously than some Muslim nations do. In fact, I, I was talking to a, a friend the other day that's a missionary, and he said, "You know." One thing I found in my missionary context is that a lot of my Muslim friends are really fine if you profess Christ so long as you don't get baptized. But once you get baptized, that's when the persecution starts. Why? Because they understand baptism is a public commitment and declaration of a new way of life that is verging off into following Jesus with their whole life. Do you think that maybe some Muslims value baptism more than American Christians do? Here's what I would say according to the scriptures. If we love Jesus and we listen to his commands, we are a people that ought to encourage believers who have put their faith in Jesus to confess that, be baptized, and join a local church. So if you're a Christian and you've not been baptized based on the good confession of the cross, come talk to one of our pastors today about baptism. We would love to talk to you about what it means to be baptized. If you're a kid and you're like, hey, I think I'm a Christian, talk to your mom and dad about what it means to be a Christian and what baptism means. I'm sure they would love to talk to you about that like my mom and dad did whenever I was 10. And on the other hand, if baptism is not accompanied by a new way of life, threading that needle, then it ought to cause you to ask if you truly have been united by faith to the morally excellent Christ. So Peter says, if you're, if you're not being sanctified or changed at all, You've forgotten what baptism means, a new way of life, a new creation. I mean, this can come in, in so subtly, like this, this idea that it's okay to, to sort of not be holy and not have moral excellence in our lives. We, we can subtly, each of us, begin to buy into this, even if we wouldn't profess the theology, even if we would fight against it. You know, we can feel, have you ever felt this way? Like, man, I, I failed again. Again, same thing. I just, I prayed for forgiveness, I repented, and then boom, I didn't even make it out of the parking lot. And you think in your mind, like, man, I don't know if I really can change this. I don't really know if God has given me, Jesus has really given me all things for life and godliness. But he has given me grace. And so maybe it's just okay that we let this thing live until Jesus gets back and he'll work it out. I think what Peter's saying is, no. But like Jesus is here now in you. He's, he, he's going to be perfecting you now in this moment. Don't let it just live. Don't let it be like the sin in, in Cain's life that grew into this little monster that was going to consume him and did consume him. See, if we get a, give up on ourselves and call it grace, we also are denying not just our ability to fight sin, but the presence and power of Jesus Christ that comes in the gospel to transform and cleanse us. We're denying what the Bible says about who Jesus is in our lives. But catch what this also means. We don't clean ourselves up to come to Jesus. So maybe you're looking around here, I hear this all the time as a pastor, man, everybody's so clean. And they're talking about your moral lives as they view them. Like, not your showering and and that kind of thing. Everybody's holy. They've got their lives together. I think I literally saw, like, Mr. Clean in the audience. Like, this is a clean place. I need to go get my stuff straight before I I come and I become part of a a church, before I become part of Jesus' people. I need to, to clean myself up. I'm the dirtiest person in the room spiritually. I don't belong here. I need to up my holiness game if I'm going to fit in. I want you to know if like you're thinking those things, you're, you're further from the true faith than you know. But you also have more hope than you ever realize. Please hear the good news. Jesus, he only calls dirty people. He didn't call anybody, that came like pre-cleaned and washed. Everybody came in dirty. Everybody is in the process of being made more clean we are clean before god in christ we are being made more clean in the day when jesus shows up none of us are as clean as we need to be we all front well right (laughs) but we're not clean in christ our feeble efforts to follow him they are redeemed but our our best efforts apart from jesus they stink the more you try to please God apart from Jesus, the stinkier you get, you, you get dirtier, not cleaner. Only Jesus can make you clean at first when you put your faith in him, and from then on, you will grow in God's grace. That's the starting point, Christ. See, we don't clean ourselves up to come to Jesus. We come to Jesus to clean us and to give us access to the Father with our first spiritual movement. And we continue to trust Christ, as 1 John 1, 9 says, every day until then, where he tells us that if we confess our sins, this is the believers, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And hear this this morning, if you were struggling in sin and you feel like, man, I just don't know if I can be made clean again, he promises and he will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He cleanses at first and he's continuing to clean us in Christ. But catch this, clearly Peter isn't saying that you can be a Christian in the name only without a changed life. Because in verses 10 to 11, he tells us this, Third, progressive sanctification provides assurance of salvation and glorification. Progressive sanctification, it provides assurance of salvation and glorification. See, Peter's still talking about these things. He just really wants to talk about moral excellence and these virtues. And, like, do you really understand what I'm talking about? And he begins here in verse 10 with therefore. And anytime you see a therefore in the Bible, you need to ask what? What is that therefore? There we go. And Peter's drawing a conclusion from verses 3 to 9, I think, with that, therefore, because of all the stuff I've just said in verses 3 to 9, this is what I want you to know. So, union with Christ provides every Christian with all things necessary to live a godly life, and a new life, and a new way of life. And those things should be on display. And as those things are on display, he says they here ought to bring assurance. Assurance both of your salvation, that you've been saved, and of your glorification, the future that awaits you. Uh, Notice, he says this in verses 10 to 11, these two things that you are given assurance of, salvation and glorification. The first is in verse 10. He points to these qualities, and he says they confirm your election and calling. That's assurance of salvation. Look there with me again at verse 10 at what he says. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election for if you practice these qualities you will never fall. Peter here is speaking to the Christians as brothers, part of the family of God in Christ where God is their father. Uh, That father language of the New Testament's beautiful. It's not a common description of God in the Old Testament, but the New Testament, we all over the place see God as Father. In fact, when Jesus teaches us to pray, we are praying to our Heavenly Father. It's something that's been opened up to everybody that's put their faith in Christ. We are part of the family of God, receiving the love of God, and we become a family of brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he's writing this to these Christians. And here in this verse, in verses 10 to 11, he's speaking to these Christians, and he calls Christians here, notice, he says, brothers, be all the more diligent. Now, diligent is a word that sounds familiar to another idea that we saw back previously in verse 5, where Peter said, make every effort. Here he says, be diligent. But notice what Peter goes on to say. He casts this pursuit of virtue As a means of confirming their calling an election. Did you see that? Now hang with me. It seems like Peter is saying the diligent effort to grow in the virtues, everything from faith to love that we saw in verses 5 to 7, it serves as a a means of confirming one's calling an election. So you might be saying, well, what is this calling an election? It, It sure seems like This confirming that's happening describes a kind of assurance one has about their calling and election. Well, I take this call to speak of the same kind of effectual call that we saw spoken of back up in verse 3. It is that kind of call that actually creates faith in a believer, regenerating them, causing new birth. Some believe faith precedes regeneration. I take it that Paul speaks of a call here that actually creates the life necessary to come. That when a believer comes to faith, they not only hear good news about Jesus, but when they receive that effectual call of Jesus, they hear the very voice of Christ spiritually calling them to himself. And it's a call that actually creates and affects in us the ability to come to Christ. I think it's... A very similar thing that we read about in Luke 24. On the re- You'll remember where Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and he shows up, and he, he what? He opens the scriptures, and, and he starts showing them all the things in the Old Testament that point to him, just like he did to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And we're told that after he did that, they were like, wow, this is great. The guys on the, on the road to Emmaus, they didn't even understand that they were talking to Jesus while Jesus was preaching Jesus from the Old Testament. Not until Jesus gave them the ability to see him. In fact, if you notice the way that he shows up to the disciples, it says that after he showed them these things, he opened their minds so that they saw Jesus spiritually and heard his voice. See, the Bible uses the word election literally here, to speak of a choosing that's going on. So they're not only called, they're chosen. Now similarly, election here is the process by which God chooses the community of believers in Christ. We are God's chosen and precious people, the new Israel whom God has covenanted with himself in Christ. Now there are two main views of election. You know that Jacob Arminius taught that God basically elected But his election was based on looking into the future and seeing all those people that would choose him, and he chose those who chose him. Now the other view, I don't see that taught in Scripture anywhere. I can't find verses to support that. But the other view, the one taught by John Calvin, I I, I do see Scriptures for this. He taught that the triune God did see that all of humanity would fall before the foundation of the world was laid, and he determined to save some. But He says the Bible does not tell us why God chose some and and not others. He leaves it to mystery. And if you plumb the depths of Scripture, the only answer that that I can find to why God chose some and not others is God's grace. And you're like, well, okay, well, is there any clarity than that? In in Ephesians, he says also, uh, for the great love with which he loved us. Well, why did he love us? It doesn't say. It is completely an act of God's sovereign grace that any are called or elected or saved. Yet Peter says that we can observe Christians in that they confess Christ, they are baptized, and are progressively sanctified. We don't know who God chooses, why he chooses them, and yet we are told that we can see where the Holy Spirit is at work, where the wind is blowing. Now I think this last phrase in, in this verse, verse 10, is an assuring promise for those who confirm their faith with growing in grace. Here it is, you Ready? If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. You will never fall. It's a promise. Now, you might read this fall as sin here and think, I think things just got worse, not better. I fall all the time. I fell when you said that. I said the Bible's not true. That's not true in my life. But when you read fall here, I don't think that it's speaking of a kind of sinless perfection that you will never sin again if you put your faith in Christ. So you might read this this fall and think that this means that you arrive at some status in the process of sanctification whereby you will never sin again. John Wesley, a famed pastor, was the founder of perfectionism and taught that sanctification can be entire and complete in this life, that you can experience perfect love before Jesus comes back. Catch this. It's not a bad goal, you with me, to seek to aim for perfect love. It's a glorious thing. God is is love. It's a a good thing to aim for perfection of love, of love of God in Christ, and love of uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, and and, and your neighbors, and even your enemies. It's a good thing to, to put your goal as being perfect in obedience but it's something quite different to set that forth as a spiritual expectation of those who are really serious about Jesus as though you can and should be perfect if you really know Jesus and you reach some sweet spot of Christianity and there are a few who have and everybody else hasn't and everybody else is just trying to get there. See, I don't think Jesus got it wrong in Matthew 6:12 when he taught us to pray in this way, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. See, John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, First John 1, eight. We need to educate ourselves and our diligent efforts. We need to educate those di- diligent efforts with the reality that while every Christian is being perfected in Christ, no Christian will arrive at perfection until Jesus returns. That's why we need Jesus to come back. So Some of you are like, man, I'm pretty good. I don't know if I need Jesus to continue fixing this right? Some of you ladies out there are like, I just haven't found the man that's worth this. We all need Jesus to come back. So says the Bible. Now, here fall speaks not simply of sin, but of apostasy. That's forsaking God and abandoning his people. If you practice these things, if you are showing life in Christ, you're not going to fall away. Growth in grace is one encouragement that brings assurance that we truly are called and elected by God. The absence of these things signals danger that we will fall away. Now, I know that some, some have looked at this text and they have argued that what is being pointed to is a kind of assurance that is subjective. Like that your, your efforts, they, they should make you feel better about your salvation and there's going to be ebbs and flow dependent and contingent upon how good you're doing that day. I don't think that there's not some experiential truth to that, but I actually take this as a subjective assurance only by ricochet. In the sense that Peter seems to be pointing to a virtuous life as an objective confirmation that can grow someone's subjective experience of assurance, our our thoughts and confidences, they might wane because of life and our lives, our conditions, the things that we face. But but we can look to and and take some encouragement that our life has actually been transformed by the gospel. Others can point us to this. And this is important because some have taught that true faith comes with absolute certainty and assurance that you are a Christian. That if you really believe, then you have perfect faith. Your life might not be perfect, but you never have a waning faith in Christ. Maybe you struggle with assurance and you have a, a sensitive conscience and you actually find that you lack your lack of subjective certainty because you know that you're, you're, you're not always certain as you want to be, that it actually causes you to have even less assurance of your faith. You know what I'm talking about? Because you're like, great, you're supposed to have certainty of faith, and now I'm asking if I have it, and I don't feel like I have it, so I go back and I think, well, I must not be assured of faith because I'm now doubting more just because you asked the question. I've counseled tons of folks like, like this. And, and some of you, some of you have sensitive consciences and struggle more than others to, to trust that you really have been forgiven by God, whether you're young or old. Uh, holy life and, and unholy life, like it's just some struggle in this way. I, I remember when I was in seminary, I was teaching an older men's Sunday school class, and there was this brother who, his name was Jerry, and he, he always asked the same question. Like, Pastor, I know, Josh, I know, that I know that the Bible says that I'm to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And every time I I read that, I just, I know that it's not true of me. I I fail, I have failed, and I'm reminded of my life before I came to Christ. I wish I had come to Christ young like you, but I didn't, and I just look back and I just, I, I get worried that I'm not ready for Jesus to come back. And in that moment, I can look at all kinds of examples of how this brother has been transformed by the power of the gospel that he can't even see himself. And in those moments, often his works are not enough to bring confidence. So where is it that we point him in those moments? We point him to the Christ behind the works, the Christ who is morally excellent, who has loved him and shaped him and is still shaping him. The confidence is not to be found in, oh, look at this growth on this chart and this grid over these years. It is, consider the Christ who is at work in you. And that's what brings him assurance and confidence again and again. If you're struggling for assurance this morning, know that our, our lives should display and will display our desperate need for more Jesus. The more serious you become about obeying and loving God with all that is in you, the more that you will see how needy you are for Christ. I am guessing that the more holy you become, the less holy you become aware that you are. Are you hearing me? The more that you see the holiness and the goodness of Jesus, the further you will feel like you are from being worthy of the love that has been shown you. And the further you will see that you are from matching the matchless glories of the morally excellent Jesus Christ. And the more you will see and fall in love with Jesus. Be faithful if you struggle with assurance. Don't give up. Don't buy into the lie that it doesn't matter Pray and ask God that will give you more assurance that it only comes from him. Discuss your doubts with other Christians. Ask them to encourage you in the gospel and trust that God wants to grow you in that assurance that will result in what Athanasius called the church adamant. The church that is unflinching and relentless in their love and commitment of Jesus. The more that we are assured of Christ, in truth, not naively, the more that we will follow him in every way. Well, notice here, lastly, in verse 11, that we not only have assurance of our salvation, but assurance of our glorification. For in this way, he says, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our future, he says, is incredibly bright. That's the assurance of a life growing in grace and what it delivers on. Uh, I I don't know if y'all have seen this new Disney show, The Mandalorian. Uh, My kids have been uh, watching that with me. We're waiting for new episodes. Some people don't like it. We love it. And there's this line that The Mandalorian continues to use throughout the show. This is the way. This is the way. And he's talking about the Mandalorian way. The Mandalorian way, which is amongst other things, uh, you are both predator and prey. It's, It's a kind of way that they live. And it just sort of explains everything like whatever I do if I say this is the way then people will say oh I guess this is the way well notice that this verse begins for in this way and Peter here says this is the way and he's speaking of the way of life for the Christians and for Jesus as the way the truth and the life right so union with Christ leads to Christ-like goodness until the consummation when Jesus returns and we see him face to face and we receive his eternal kingdom. Do do you see the promise here though? He says, those who are united to Christ are going to be richly provided for. Now I love that. We've been talking about like hey, moral effort, you need to be diligent. And yet here, when he talks about when Jesus comes back and the eternal kingdom arrives, he says, the only way that anybody gets in is generosity, the generosity of God. It is not that you have earned your way in, it's that God, by grace, has allowed you in. Entrance isn't earned as a gift. It uh, isn't earned, it's a gift. It's generous. And those who enter, those are those united to Christ. They are those who are being progressively sanctified until they are glorified and enter into Jesus' eternal kingdom. You'll remember, this corrupt world is dying and passing away. But our hope is grounded in a kingdom that is not passing away. If, if you are in Christ, you are already a citizen of the kingdom of God. And did you see how it's described here? The eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, those who enter understand Jesus is both Lord and Savior. They understand that he is the author of salvation. You can't have Jesus as Savior but not Lord. Now, as I close, I just wanted to encourage um, you guys with something because I've had People ask me in just about every context um, about a related topic. Uh, Most of you know that uh, Ravi Zacharias, who is a famed apologist, super respected across pretty much all denominational lines, recently fell to sin. And the fascinating part of it is we we find that uh, it was discovered that he had a lifelong trajectory of being involved in in great, deep sin. He was uh, abusing women. Uh, He was practicing spiritual abuse. Uh, He was uh, really, in many ways, it seemed like you you wonder how much time he had to sin as much as he did during his life. Now, the, the, the irony is that we only discovered this really pretty much the day of his funeral. When a woman saw it, and she couldn't stand hearing what had been talked about, talked about, acting like this man was having godly character when she knew the truth. And so she came out, and then a number of others came out, And then it's like the dam broke and we found out that this guy who all thought was just a super godly guy actually had been living a life full of sin. Now, only God knows, in in one sense, Ravi's future. But when I read a text like Peter, I think this is a a warning for us all. Ravi's life has become a parable. Some use it as an excuse not to put their faith in Jesus. Uh, Some others are discouraged by it because they're like, this is a man I respected. What do you do when a hero falls from the faith or has shown that he never truly believed? I think that Peter would say, Robbie's future is not incredibly bright. He had a life mired in sexual sin and exploitation of women, and such will not inherit the kingdom of God. Only God knows, but I would say that according to, to Peter, it seems like there's a lot of doubt. But what about you? What do you do when your hero has fallen? You know, over the last decade, I've had many heroes fall fall morally, but it reminds us, I think, of at least two realities. First, Jesus is our hero, not fallen humanity. The best of us fail, and, and sometimes much, much worse. Jesus never fails. Jesus is the anchor of our hope. None of us put our confidence ultimately Not only in our own good works, but even the good works of our heroes here on earth. Christ must be at the center. Second, don't hide your sins. Seek Jesus and change your life today. I've known a lot of people who thought that the worst thing in the world that could happen is that their sins find them out, that people find out they're not who they said they were. And they died without repenting and confessing and turning from sin to Jesus Christ. You don't know that you have tomorrow. If that's you today and you've got sin that nobody knows about, like let me just beg you like I would have begged Ravi, Confess, repent, lose your reputation in this life so that you might gain Christ. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come before you, we, we praise you. We praise you that you have sent your son. That you have called us to yourself, that you have elected us, that you are transforming us. Father, we confess with John Newton that we are not what we want to be. We are not yet what we ought to be. We are not what we one day will be. But that we are not what we were once. And by the grace of God, we are what we are in Christ. And so, Father, as we go from this place today, those of us in Christ, let us be encouraged. Encouraged by the power of Christ who is at work in us. Those who are not in Christ, I pray, Lord, that they would see the beauty of Christ and run to him. Father, do all this for the glory of your namesake, we do pray. Amen.